I um, was inspired uh, to talk about, I was thinking about what chapter would be good. And what's interesting is I wrote 16 chapters, and this is what I want to teach on for the next year or two, was all the things that I felt like was important to say right now or to convey and to articulate as a Dharma teacher and a community person. And so um, I just recently, a, a few days ago, we did a, a retreat, a Meta and Qigong retreat at Spirit Rock. It was really beautiful. It's a retreat that I've been coordinating for a few years. And we bring, bring together the Meta practice and then Qigong because uh, the Qigong, I always say people need to feel the Meta in their body. It's not just mental, right? The practices can become with anything mental and we can lack a feeling tone. And so Tija Bell who's a friend, and he's a long-term, long, long-time practitioner at Sri Rock, um, and Dharma teacher and movement teacher, energy teacher, you could say. He teaches a lot of Qigong-based work, often on many long retreats. And and so him and I got together, and we, really, we were really talking about this, like how do we merge these together? And so we've come up with this good merging... Um, and he does this qigong with me, and he would call it the radiant heart. And we would, we were, you know, just talking about how to embody this quality more. So um, I wrote one of the chapters about this, and a chapter called "Love Is the Answer," because uh, for most of my life, these practices of metta and compassion have been very central, and it's been almost twenty years since I've first started getting into this community and practicing very intensively. And what I would notice is that this quality, I feel, is a bit underdeveloped. I guess they hate to say that word. Under, uh, yeah, we haven't developed it as, as we could in a way. And I want to say that for a couple of different reasons. When I was in my teacher training, um, a few years ago I did a long teacher training and can you hear me okay? Okay. I did a teacher training uh, with Jack Cornfield. Who, he's been my main mentor uh, since I was quite young. And I think I naturally resonated with him because he was so, uh, his teachings were focused on the heart. Right? It was like, ah, oh, when I was young, I was like, yes, you're definitely, uh, you know, an elder that I, I deeply uh, will follow. And it was very much... His energy was very much like my own and what I wanted to express to my community and wherever I go. And also what I want to embody. It's not just teaching and practice. It's like full embodiment of these qualities. So when I was in um, training as a new teacher, one of the things that we do, and this I, I ended my training maybe six, seven years ago, was we would sit in on interviews. So the month long, and so I basically follow him all around. That's what the kind of part of the you know job of mentoring, right? You take your mentees with you, and they're kind of you know entourage with you, and they're learning all the time by observation and listening. And so sitting in on so many retreats, long retreats, and even sitting on retreats on the East Coast um, with my other teacher Joseph Goldstein, who has been here many times, I'm sure. Um, so listening to people's interviews, meetings, 
So basically getting a snapshot of what their mind was like, anywhere from a 10-day retreat to a one-month retreat to a two-, three-month course. And um, I was always a little bit uh, surprised, I guess you could say, because what I noticed was that people weren't really going through the stages of insight, like the way that I had thought. And stages of insight are in insight meditation, there's certain things that you look for, and that being um, understanding more of uh, the Four Noble Truths, suffering, the nature of suffering, which leads to letting go, understanding anicca, impermanence, and also understanding sort of the, the nature of self, uh, anatta, no self, selflessness, egolessness. And when one starts to have those insights really well, really deeply, what happens is that the heart starts to shine through. Because that's sort of all the things that obscures our natural happiness and joy. Right? Those are sort of the things like, even on a beautiful day in Berkeley, everything's great. We don't feel that we're great. You know, even at on beautiful retreat centers and deer frolicking by and sun setting and organic food, everyone, we, it doesn't feel great. And at that, that difference there, it's like, wow, well, what's happening here? So the stages of insight, um, but what I, are important to, they're sort of markers on the path, right? It's how we, it's how we grow on some level, Right? Insights also are kinds of, you know, they're, they're like, imagine a tree. Say, imagine there's a tree and we call it the tree of delusion. And insights are just like chopping away at that tree, little by little. And so sometimes you have a little baby one, it's like a little chop. And then sometimes, wow, one big one, right in the middle, right? And you get a big chunk of it, right? And, and then sometimes it falls all together. Right, and one could describe that as nibbana or stream entry, all these self realization, you know, there's all these variations and who really knows what that fully means. I'm certainly not talking from the point tonight of knowing what it's like for that to be the experience, but I, I do know a little bit about the heart and my own direct experience of that. Um, and so what I would notice when I would be in these meetings with people is that they would be struggling. But occasionally there would be someone who would come in and we would all get really excited. It's like they would be coasting along and we would see all the stages there. And this freedom. And as teachers of anything, even a math teacher, right? They want their students to get it, don't they? Like you get your joy out of that. You're like, yes, yes. And it also verifies your own faith. So when, when there's only struggle, there's a part of uh, our own being that also thinks, oh no, is this, is this as it should be? Is this, is this working? Are we, what are we doing? Or, you know, what's happening? It's collective, right? We're all here helping each other. So then I would see this person come in every now and then, and, um, and what I noticed was those people that were moving through these stages really beautifully, they had one common denominator. And that common denominator would be this incredible compassion toward themselves, towards others, but mostly toward themselves. They would have this like they would have this heart centeredness. 
And that warmth of heart, what that would do was when difficulties come, they're not rocked off their seat by it. Right? So what happens is most of us, what was the struggle that I was hearing on retreat was that people were, they were like, they were capsizing. Uh, trauma, pain, delusion, our mind would just start raining down on us. And not knowing how to be centered, we would just kind of go down. Right? So it's something, and I always describe it as going downstream in a, a river in a, in a boat. Right, and so you're in a boat, and then uh, you're going along, and then and then a storm comes, and you collapse. So you're going to go down the river. And I like rivers that represent streams of awakening, stream of consciousness. Something's always flowing. Something's moving all the time. Right. Um, so we're going down, but how are we getting down? And how long does it take? If you collapse every five minutes. You're going down. That's the good thing. But how long and how painful, right? If you've ever flipped over in a kayak or even fallen off your bike, it's like it's a lot to kind of get back and get oriented and then go again and then have the same kind of experience. Um, So I was really taken aback by that. And I started pointing this out. And I was saying to a lot of the teachers, without love and compassion, insight can never arise. Because with insight, one has to be willing to let go, right? Because that's what it is. It's like a a shift. But we have to kind of allow that shift. We have to be open to that shift. Um, And we have to be uh, willing to open to things in a completely different way. We can't be attached. And when we have a lot of love and compassion developed, we're less attached to things. We're more like, okay, it is how it is, right? You know, a warm heart is not just hippie talk. It's now science, right? The, the, the importance of the cultivation, right? Prove, you know, we have all this neuroscience now and organizations like Heart Math down in San Jose and all this data that the heart that I was recently, because I study a lot of this stuff and people send me stuff now. And also I believe in this power that is the heart has its own intelligence. I've always said that. Now all these neuro- neurologists or uh, cardiologists and are saying that they now have recognized the heart has a brain, <laughs> right? So it has its own wisdom that's, you know, radiating, moving, trying to get our attention, and um, in Pali, the word chitta, which means heart, it means heart-mind. That's how they refer to mind in the Pali canon, heart-mind. So it's not here and where we're, we're sort of cut off, right? So we don't live in all of this. We don't, we don't, our frame of reference isn't that. And um, that takes a toll in our meditation, it takes a toll on the moment to moment because it's difficult to have a sitting practice when our mind feels violent, right? Or often people report it's like, it's just a lot of self-hatred. Does that make sense? Or the self-criticism, like we sit and we think of all the things we didn't do right, right? Instead of having this moment of being like, ah, you know, feeling our heart, we're like, how many people worried about something when you were meditating just now, <laughs> Right? Oh my God, I have to send the Christmas cards. Oh my God, I actually had that thought that I hadn't sent Christmas cards. 
And then I went, well, at least you made them pretty. They'll arrive late, you know. But my mind flipped to that. They're cute, you know. They'll just get them on the 27th or the 28th, you know. Um, but, and so, and so it's important to, to think about the cultivation of the heart as we move into a new year here and things shift and we're in this kind of uh, period where, wow, so much is needed and I don't know a better time to cultivate this quality and to, and to be this quality. You know, we don't, it's not so much about needing more opinions, it's needing examples, Right? Like, how do, I, how do I be an example of this? So one of my favorite quotes by Jack, and I, I thought about getting this tattooed. I don't have tattoos, but for the first time, I wanted to get this, a tattoo, and I thought, wow, could I get it on my heart? It might be painful. And the, ta- and the, the phrase is talking in a Dharma talk about our culture and about the, the hang-ups on the spiritual path. We get hung up on certain things. And he was saying, we're not here to perfect ourselves. We're here to perfect our love. And that's two very different paths. And I think sort of the, the mindfulness movement has been kind of uh, taken a little bit by uh, sort of, let's fix ourselves that, Right? How do I work more mindfully? How do I <laughs> eat more mindfully? Right. So then it becomes we mix it into a self-improvement project, which can be good. I'm not negating that, but it loses the essence of why we're doing what we're doing. Right. We're doing what we're doing to let go and be free. Um, and so there's this little poem by Kwomi. Uh, I mean by Rumi. Kwomi. Rumi. He writes, a pearl goes up on the auction block. No one bids. The pearl buys itself. <laughs> and I, I like that. It's like we have to buy ourselves. We have to, this is, we do this ourselves. Nobody can give us this, right? And this quality of meta and compassion. And I know this is something that James does talk about a lot, these heart qualities, um, however, sometimes they can stay at that level of like, wow, these are great ideas. Yeah. And then we walk out and our lives are often compartmentalized. Do you ever notice that? You're one way here on Thursday at work. Wow, totally different. In my relationship, wow, really different. And I, I used to have that sort of feeling when I was younger. I would go to three-month retreats. And then I would fly back to Oakland and then you know, drink alcohol and be crazy with my friends. And then after a few weeks, I would go like, wait, I just sat three months like a nun. Now what am I doing? And the pendulum would swing here and swing here. And then after a while, it became less about that and more about how do I live this moment to moment? How do I really open? And Chogyam Trumpa, the great Tibetan teacher, controversial for sure, uh, but wow, he had some real gems for his students. One time, I, a friend was telling me um, a story about how she was with him. She was an elder. She's in her 80s now. When he was in his heyday in Colorado in the 70s, he he came into one of his talks all the time and looked at all his students. There's maybe three or 400 people there, and he demanded everyone take their clothes off. 
he wasn't serious. He wasn't going to really do it. But he said, if you aren't willing to do that, then you should go because the meditation path is way worse than that. <laughs> you think taking your clothes off is hard? How about shedding all your delusion, right? Everything you hold is so precious, your concepts, right? So let's start there, right? And everyone was like, are we supposed to do it or what? Or <laughs> but he used it as an example. Because even in that moment, people are like, no, right? And he was saying, that's small. That's small stuff, right? If you, if you just had a reaction to that, then maybe you shouldn't even be here. Right, and he kind of challenged them, but he was known to do that. But I think you get the point, though, right? It's like, how much are we really willing to let go? And the heart, what I've learned about the heart with my own practices and being in downtown Oakland for 10 years, I've been a core teacher and a founder of EBMC and the stories, 10 years of a lot of stories of all types. And one of the things that motivated me to write a book about the fierce heart was the power of the human spirit to take the most difficult. That's what I love about it. To take the most difficult because only the heart is strong in this way. The mind, no. (laughs) As we know, look at our minds. They're crazy most of the time, right? Monkey minds. But the heart has a certain fortitude. You feel that? It has a certain... It's the, the heart kind of is like, you know, you read those stories about mothers who lift up cars off their kids, you know, it's like, who does that, right? It's like the love of the heart, like kind of creates a force, soul force. It's a much deeper, much more profound stability than anything that we can cultivate outside of that. If we don't have that with our mindfulness practice, We're not operating at maximum capacity. We're very easily pushed, right? We're very easily collapsed, and um, especially in these times. So this is why I talk about this all the time in Oakland. And and, and so to to give people a sense that we, we have to find this new heart strength that's mixed with presence. Because I feel the heart is always really present, and it always wants to be free. It longs to be free. That I do know. You imprison it, you suffer. And that freedom also comes with a sense of it wants to be boundless. It wants to know universal love because it has the capacity to. Right? And, and then the meta practices that we do, um, that we're always practicing, the Brahma Viharas, meta and joy and equanimity, and... Um, all these qualities, compassion, they're described in the Pali Canon as immeasurable, beyond measure. And we sort of tapped into that during our seven-day meta retreat because after many days, there was a lot of concentration and people started experiencing a dissolving and expansion. <laughs> like they're like, wow, the elements started you know, playing with them a little bit. And this is how concentration works, right? We start to tap into another kind of frequency. Now, what is the cause of concentration? Happiness. And if you start to look through everything, happiness is at the root of a lot of things. And I know that's why James talks about it. But it's more than just happiness. It's a kind of love. 
right? It's a, it's a, it's a love of I'm, I'm okay with whatever this moment brings. It might be beautiful. It might be very painful. But how can I grow from this moment? How can I grow? So I, I love um, thinking about how difficulties, that's kind of my whole new frame of reference. Like We don't need to escape from difficulties. We need to open to them. <laughs> they are the heavenly messengers. They are the keys, actually. It's the avoidance of difficulty. People who avoid all difficulties in life, they will be permanently collapsed on the side of the bank. Don't you kind of know that? Right? People who are like, no, no. No, this is wrong. No. And that's how we are kind of a lot in our life. Imagine your day-to-day. How many times have we said, no, stop, I don't want, no, stop, I don't. That's kind of our mantra to how we meet life. It's like, we'd, And we're learning how to change and be open. Um, during the process of writing this book, um, I'm just going to tell you a little a story that I shared at some of my book signings. I never wanted to write any a book. Actually, this Parallel Press, who's local here in Berkeley, Thich Nhat Hanh's editor, publisher, they came to me, and I kept saying, but I'm not a writer. <laughs> I don't, I hate writing, actually. I do. And, um, and they said, no, no, you know, we, we will, we'll help you. And I was like, no, I'm not a writer. I'm a verbal person. I communicate ideas and concepts verbally. I don't, I don't like sitting down for hours on my computer writing. I can't do it. No, I can't do it. And um, so then I would go to my community, and often people would be confused about things, and they would... They would want. They would say, "Do you have a, a?" You know, somebody would walk in off the street and come into our classes, and they say, "What is this? Do you have a beginner book or a book that I could understand that's relatable to me?" And I got that so many times. I thought, "Oh, it's a sign, isn't it?" And um, so I want to read you something here. I'm jumping around a little bit, but it just came to me. I don't really plan my Dharma talks anymore. So it's sort of about the heart. And um, I write this in School of Life, a chapter, how we use the worst circumstances. I mean the worst. And, And the thing is that now I have a lot of faith in how tragedies and awful things that we consider terrible can be the best things. Uh, because they force us to transform in a way that we normally wouldn't. When it's too cozy, we just don't grow. And we have to either be committed to growing or committed to trying to stay cozy at any mo- at all times. <laughs> it's like the, the, the spiritual path is anything but uh, supposed to be uh, perfect. right? It's supposed to have bumps and turns and twists. And that's how we navigate. So um, I want to just read this to you. Uh, and this also kind of is a, how this book project was so challenging for me. But this is a particular story. A few years ago, I had the chance to live in the Peruvian jungle for a year studying plants and the shamanic tradition. I decided to take a break for a few weeks and go up to the sacred valley and visit the mountains. I went to Cusco, 
a city in the Peruvian Andes which was once the capital of the Inca Empire. It sits in an altitude of over 11,000 feet and the majestic mountains are alive with spirit. I decided to join a group of people to go on a hike and explore the mountains a bit. I arrived at our meeting spot at 8 o'clock in the morning and I was immediately disappointed. I thought I was going with an elder Andean shaman, but his two young apprentices showed up instead, Juan and Miguel. They seemed way too young and immature. I didn't feel a heart connection with either of them. After collecting some supplies, we took an hour-long bus ride out into the middle of nowhere. To my great shock, they pointed to a large mountain in the distance and said, we're going to climb that today. As we got going, I was getting more and more exhausted, and I couldn't seem to catch my breath. My heart started pounding from the high altitude, and I was getting burned in the scorching sun. The two apprentices showed no signs of turning back, and they didn't have much compassion when I told them I was feeling very sick. They just kept saying, you can do it, while laughing. This was turning out to be one of the worst days of my life. The other members of our small group all seemed fine, but I was not. After many hours, I decided, I started to get angry, and I asked them to please take me back. By then, I was in serious pain and getting dizzier with each step. My head was pounding. I was nauseated. I couldn't breathe properly, and I was literally foaming at the mouth. Finally, we reached the scariest part at the base of the mountain. It was straight uphill from there. As hard as I tried, I could not do it. My cheap tennis shoes were slipping on the long, slick blades of grass, and huge gusts of wind were causing me to fall backwards. In my eyes, the whole situation was becoming very dangerous. Finally, halfway up the mountain, I screamed that I couldn't go on, and I demanded they take me home immediately. I sat down and began to argue with Juan and Miguel in Spanish. They kept asking me, why I couldn't do it. It infuriated me. Then I suddenly completely lost myself and started screaming, I can't do it. A giant gust of wind came up and I held onto the mountainside for dear life. Then I spontaneously started sobbing. As I cried, I started to listen to myself scream, I can't do it over and over. In reality, that had been a familiar mantra throughout my life, this deeply held belief that I couldn't do things. Old memories began playing in my mind while I screamed and wailed, hanging on to the side of the mountain. The guys just sat down and stared at me curiously. I think for the first time they realized that I was battling something very powerful within myself. They stopped laughing and started praying. As I shrieked hysterically and pounded my fists on the earth, Juan and Miguel finally began acting like shamans. They began singing, chanting, and offering tobacco prayers to the mountain spirits. After some time, my crying stopped. Unexpectedly, I stood up, 
collected myself and silently climbed effortlessly to the top of the mountain. (laughs) Then I go on to write, later that evening when I return home, my back went out for two days. And my whole face was burnt beyond anything I'd ever seen from the sun and the mountain. It's so strong there. Uh, they also call Cusco City of the Sun. The Machu Picchu is known to be the city of the sun gods. And so there I was burnt but happy and I got the teaching. I was like, wow, I, I really, I could have done it. I don't know what was happening to me there. So I often think about that too because what that was about for me was also the heart, right? It was about, can I follow follow my heart? Can I listen? And the heart has its own magic, its own GPS system. If you listen to it, it will guide you home. If you override it, you'll suffer. Have you noticed this in your own life? When we override something, it's like our gut instincts. Also, my friend Christiana, who teaches a lot at EBMC, she's a uh, a doctor. She doesn't practice gynecology anymore. She's mostly doing Dharma at LA Insight. She was. We were both laughing because I was telling her about the heart having a brain, and she said, "Now we also figure out the gut has a brain." So here we are. The gut and the heart have brains, right? What are we saying here? The body is intelligent. That's what we're saying. And the more we listen to the heart, you know, the heart is deeply bound with the body. When you meet someone and you say, wow, they're a very heady person, you don't often connect them to the heart, right? When you, when you meet someone, you're like, wow, I can feel the warmth of their spirit. I mean, that's why people like Jack so much, because when he sits down and he looks at everyone, he just gives this transmission of warmth, and everyone feels like, oh, everything's going to be all right. Well, that's what the heart does. It has this infinite compassion, right, that kind of embraces it. So my encouragement, I think, is to think about meta practice during the solstice and the holiday season. This is a time where we get very triggery, right? We get very, it brings up a lot. For people, a lot of sorrow, a lot of sadness, right? They feel left out, lonely, or even maybe they have all kinds of family and friends and in the middle of it, they just don't feel connected to it. Right? They feel, um, we could feel like here we are again in some kind of uh, monotony. Right? We don't, we don't see anything on the horizon. When you bring this heart uh, energy into your practice, it changes everything. So another book that I've been, I, w- I recently read by Ram Dass, I loved it. I rarely laugh out loud, like really laugh reading books. But man, he really, I saw his sense of humor in this book. It's called The Path to God. And it was his commentary on the Bhagavad Gita. Okay, so it was recently transcribed um, by uh, many of his students and then re-edited. And basically what's so great about the book is um, it's his stories of him and six years in India with Neem Karoli Baba. And it's all the funniest stories. And it was about his struggle to open his heart. And he would scream and wail and go crazy. And Neem Karoli Baba would just look at him and just say, love. If you want to know God, open your heart. Serve. Be loving to everyone. That's the path. And he would fight against it and fight against it. You know how we are. (laughs) 
And um, there's so many funny stories in that book. Um, uh, he talks about the time where Neem Curly Baba asked him for all of his LSD, kind of the famous story. And, and, and so Ram Dass had been hoarding it secretly, you know, in some little vial. So he went and got it. And Neem Curly Baba read his mind every moment. It was all, he was always like, I have no privacy. Right. So he got he got it and he gave it to him. And then, you know, as the story goes, uh, you know, Nikola just takes all of it. It's a huge amount. Like, I don't know how many milligrams, but it was enough for many people. And so Ram Das was like, oh, my God, we need a hospital, an ambulance. This is awful. He's going to die. And no change. So he sat there with his blanket and continued teaching. <laughs> And then only at one moment, Ramdas said he hid like this for a second, and then went, ah, and then, you know, that was the only thing that happened to him. So, and he said, you you can be like this with your heart. That was the teaching. He said, when your heart is steady, nothing can, can move. It's immovable. And that's the kind of heart that is fierce. Like nothing could. And Neem Karli Baba, he just basically... All he had was this old shawl and underwear. That was all he wore for the last 40 years of his life. He had no possessions. He wanted not none. As soon as somebody gave him something, he would immediately wait for them to leave and then give it to the nearest beggar, right? No matter if it was a $10,000 gold-plated thing or a five-cent, five-rupee thing, right? It didn't matter. It was, you know, internally, when we feel satiated here, not, it's like everything else feels insignificant. And that's what I really saw, the last thing I'll say, is that's what I really saw during the meta retreat um, was the joy that comes from the cultivation of the heart satiates all of our desires because it's almost like that's what we're always looking for. You know what I mean by that? We're always like kind of looking for some fulfillment, but it only can come from us. And we do need to practice it. That's the key. So practicing metta is is really important. And I don't really teach people to do metta very much for others. At East Bay Meditation Center, I only teach compassion and metta in one way for ourselves. Because people have it for others. They're already service workers, teachers. I'm like, you got, you already know how to do that. Where it's not is here toward ourselves. And that's very hard. That became the battle. We had about, um, and I've, I taught the meta retreat in July, and I usually teach two or three a year. And you wouldn't believe the kind of battle people had with sending love to themselves. I mean, it was going to a whole nother level, epic proportion. And people were reporting the steely, like uh, feeling uh, like a strangling feeling. We have more people get sick on that retreat, nausea. I mean, it's like a purge because they're just bringing in this other energy, and it's a higher frequency, right? It's it's like oh, right. When we follow the heart, it takes us on a higher path than when we follow the egoic mind. Right? The egoic mind, it just wants. I want, I want, I want all day long, Lamont. I want, I want. What does the heart say? It wants to be free and give. <laughs> it's like, how can we have some adventure here? 
right? Well, how do we grow? How do we include all beings? That's even another level of the heart. It doesn't like boundaries. It doesn't like you, you, not you. It's unconditional, right? And we know this even in our best moment when we are in that space, which is not enough. People, when I talk to them, I'll say, Do you, have you ever felt a moment of just that pure, unconditional? And they'll describe moments 20 years ago. Like, oh yeah, one day I was on this trip in India, or one day I was in, and all of a sudden my heart went like, and they'll remember that moment for a lifetime. And that makes me feel a little sad. Like, oh, we should be having those moments all the time because that's our true nature. What we glimpsed was our, our, the jewel in the heart of the lotus flower. So um, it's just obscured, which is very hopeful. You don't have to go find anything. You already have it. That's very optimistic about Buddhists, don't you think? It's like you're already enlightened, you just forgot. That's very hopeful than saying, you know, you could crawl on your knees on the desert for the rest of your life begging, you'll, you'll always be bad. You know, like that kind of doctrine. This is like, you're awake, you forgot. Let's work on that, you know? It's like, yes, that always resonated. I grew up with a lot of Christian um, teachings all around, and I was always going, I don't know, at a very young age, questioning them. Like, I don't, that doesn't sound right. I drove the adults around me very crazy, you know, just always having my own opinion about it. Um, But even as a young person, I knew what I knew. And I knew that there was some power. So with my own practice, I'll just end here, and then maybe if we want, we can do a little question. We're going to end a little bit earlier tonight. Um, And then if people want to get a book, I'm happy to sign them, or we can have some Q&A. But with my own practice, I'll just say... Uh, which I'm always practicing either Tonglin or Metta when I sit down or I do compassion practices. With my insight practice, it's always grounded in awareness, right? I'm always conscious. I've said I've been so steeped in that, right? Body-based practices. So I'm deep in my body with it. But I realized when I was on this retreat, wow, I'm just still a baby, there's so much to know. And when I talk about to these other teachers, of, um, uh, people who are really following, uh, you know, I love to talk to elders who are really embodying this. So uh, Father Gregory Boyle is someone who I admired. You guys know him. He read the book um, Tattoos on the Heart. He founded Homeboy Industries. Wow, that book, I just sobbed through the whole thing. What an what a being of love he is! I highly I wish I could give you all a copy of it. It is just so powerful, um, and admiring people who have that capacity to hold all the complexity of our humanity, right? And not being uh, not being naive about it, right? Also, taking good care of ourselves—that's really key. But the unwavering commitment is really, really, really important. What are we committed to? You can turn your meditation practice into a chore where we're, we're always sidelined because we're looking for something. We're just using it in a certain way. Or if we really take up this path with a heart, you will accelerate. 
because then it's like a wild ride. And when you're living in that heart-centered place and having traveled around, as for many of you, as I love traveling and spending time and all over the world, um, when I'm in that heart-centered place, everything becomes magical. I think that's why people like to travel because they get out of their routine and their fixation, lose their identity, and they just have the moment carries them, but it's actually much more of a heart-centered moment. They're open to people like, hi, how are you? You know, that we're not open to in our normal day life, right? We can get, in our normal day life, we can get shut down by the routine and go to sleep. So, um, like Rumi said, uh, the dawn has secrets to tell you, don't go back to sleep, right? Don't don't change your life into a, a place where you, you go unconscious. If you follow this more heart path, you will... You'll encounter some stuff <laughs> uh, in a good way. That's what we want to encounter, the places where we are shut down, where we are gripped, where we don't want to change or when we cling. And also who's in and who's out. Who do I let in and who do I keep out? You know, even nice Buddhists, we have a lot of walls and, and a lot of things like, no, not you. Yeah, you guys look good, you know. We we clicks, you know. It's unconscious, of course. Uh, but we want to expand out of that now. Um, so maybe I'll just read one last bit in here. Uh, Islands of Peace. <laughs> that was an interesting one. I was in downtown Oakland two days after the election teaching a huge group for uh, our Thursday night sangha, which is for communities of color, and there was 200 people in there. And then I walked into our, our, our place, which is on 17th and Harrison. So usually we have about 100 people, so it's 200. And there's a yoga class right before, and I saw as I walked in, all the windows are open, and just everything seemed really weird. And I was like, what happened? They said, oh, the, all the smoke and fire alarms went off. And I was like, oh, was there a fire? They said, no, they were doing breath of fire. And they set off all the alarms. So then when I sat down, I look at all these people, and the emotions were so powerful. I mean, it was everybody in there. And then I could hear um, there was a helicopter outside, and there was police a block away shouting at some protesters. And I think there was 10,000, 15,000 people on the street that night. And they were about to have a huge riot. I just you could feel it. So as I was leading the meditation... There was so much emotion, all the chaos outside, and we were just sitting. And then this sweet volunteer comes out to me, and she says, Honey, um, I'm getting sick. All the tear gas is coming in. So then we had to shut all the windows, and this heat was like, pour, we all were like pouring sweat. And as we ended the meditation, I looked at everyone, and the only thing I could talk about was a fierce heart. I mean, I was, what else do you say in those moments? You know, and it was like time stopped, and we stood in there, sat in there, and all the chaos outside, but inside it was just this, you know, just we were very present, very present for each other. So I see now that fierceness is the fierceness that Nelson Mandela had, and Dr. King had, and, uh, you know, Dalai Lama, and Mahatma Gandhi, who everybody who's ever encountered difficulties, is that heart energy that, oh, all right, we just got to get up and keep walking, right? 
I found this also, I'll end with finding, I found this great story, or um, it was a story about Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad. I always admired her courage, you know, again, the courage of the heart. Um, uh, Alice Walker, who's an author and a good friend of mine, she wrote this poem about Harriet Tubman based on an actual story that's reportedly that Harriet Tubman did. She was leading a group of slaves. This is someone who, you know, they had posters all around like they were going to skin her alive. And here she goes back in and tries to get 500 slaves out. Or, and, and, that, and so they're in North Carolina. So she looks at all of them. and They're standing in a swamp in the middle of the dark, terrified. And she goes, all right, everybody, we need to walk to Canada right now. So you need to just pull it together. I mean, imagine that. How, who has that kind of spirit? And, you know, fierceness and courage isn't from the mind. It's from our body. It's from here. It comes from a different place. It comes from a different place. So we can find that in ourselves. We can find that in ourselves. So um, I just want to end with, I know I said that before. There's one ending. Oh, Dr. King. Yes, since we're in community and you guys have such a community here. Our goal is to create a beloved community, and this will require a qualitative change in our souls as well as a quantitative change in our lives. We have to change. We can no longer point to everyone else and go, you, you open your heart. That's all we love to do. You, you be generous. Stop stealing all the money. Stop being greedy, right? And then it's like, can I open mine? Wait, this is really hard. That's what I always, I'm always humble when I go, can I do that? So when my judgment comes out, I go, wait, I don't know if I'm doing that yet, you know? And then I got my work to do. So I'll end it there. Thank you all for listening. Um, I'll ring this and then we'll just take an, if there's any, couple of questions. We'll just take maybe five minutes or so, and then we'll end about 10 minutes early. Any questions or comments? Hello? Yes. Mm-hmm. And I know it's getting late. Yeah, or any comment or anything? Just a couple moments here. Um, hi. Hi. So, um, yeah, I was just wondering, because since you've, uh, since loving kindness, the, uh, Brahma Viharas have been such a core part of your practice. I've always, um, I think kind of shied away from them and, and really focused on insight. And I'm finding recently that, um, the more I bring those in it, that they, they really are very compatible and um, but I, I feel kind of like shaky as far as um, I, I really you know feel moved to try to bring that more in, uh, as a daily practice. And I was just curious, like what um, I don't know if you had any recommendations as like how to. I've been I've heard before like to start with what's easiest. I know you mentioned that you start with the self, which I find is a little difficult. So I like <laughs> I've been going on walks down Shattuck and just kind of like, as people walk by, just 
you know, thinking may you be well. And it, it seems to be uh, helping and working. I can definitely feel it, like, in the body. Um, but I don't do as much of, like, the form. Like, when I sit, it's more of just kind of observing what's arising and not so much with the phrases and whatnot. So I was just curious, since you've been uh, doing it for so long, if you had any recommendations as far as how to approach it and cultivate it. Yeah, I mean, you know, the meta practice is a bit like, you know, you're with with all of our practices we're cultivating, right? We're cultivating qualities of presence, we're cultivating we're cultivating the fertile ground for insight to happen in. Right? So like if you have a garden and you want to plant all these plants, you have to make sure the soil is really good, right? Otherwise, you put a beautiful plant in dry compacted soil, it could be the best plant in the world and it doesn't have the nutrients to survive and dies, right? Or it doesn't grow, fails to thrive, right? So with everything, we're always looking at the mind, which I love about Dharma practice and Buddhist practices is, is, is the cultivation part. And I never really understood until I became more involved in Tibetan Buddhism and met my teacher, Minja Rinpoche, about how the compassion that is so stressed in the Tibetan tradition I mean, it was like, you start there, you don't start here. You start there because that's it. And I didn't, I was like, wow, yeah, okay, bodhicitta for the benefit of others. I was very young, naive, and I didn't really get it. So we think inside practice, that's it, right? We're just, right? And I did that for a lot of years, and then the plateauing happens. Has anyone noticed the plateau? First, you come into the Dharma, and you have a love affair, it all's new and takes off. But then a couple years in, things kind of go like this. <laughs> Wait, am I going here? It's the same, right? So what you're saying about bringing in other practices is really important. So I tell people to bring in a new, like a, a compassion practice or a meta practice maybe intensively for three or six months and see what that's like and kind of really infuse it so that we're kind of, we're, we're intentionally cultivating that quality, like we're, we're taking it in, right, in a new way. Um, so I like to give that to people because uh, I think doing it intensively, you, you taste the fruit of it a little bit more. But it's beautiful to walk in Berkeley, walk in Oakland, or walk in any urban environment and wish well. I mean, anytime you can do that, it's going to affect your mind in positive ways. Um, so you could do it 10 or 15 minutes a day. You could start there. Or if you want to stay with the other practice, the thing is about the meta, as long as you're present, you're actually cultivating concentration. You feel your body. That's why we do it with Qigong, so people are feeling the energy, not just kind of the repetition. Because um, it can, that can be hard to feel what it is that we're doing. Uh, so I would suggest maybe doing... 15 minutes a day or taking on a chunk of time and going like, I'm going to really see where this goes. I'm going to surrender into it, right? And let, and listen to Dharma talks and guided meta or an easiest place possible. So yes, let me answer that part. Yes, we do meta in the easiest way possible. A big issue why it doesn't work for people is they do it in the hardest way possible. So they go, well, I tried to do meta for this dictator and it just didn't help i was so angry right i'm like yeah so when we're training we want to start you know imagine there's these cute little puppies and don't you want the puppies to be happy yeah right we start with our cats we start with easy people not the hardest person we start with easy and it's like a training 
And then, uh, and sometimes ourselves is really hard. And so if you want to work with yourself, which I, I think is great, find an image of yourself as a child, a picture of yourself. Don't do it at the age you are now because there's so much judgment and layers built up. But if you can find a picture of yourself at three, four, five, it's very hard to be judgmental then, right? We just see the beauty, you know, we immediately. So younger in age, that's how I really made big breakthroughs. That seems to be uh, helpful. Okay, so, yeah. Tonglin practice, yes. And then we'll take maybe the last one in the back. Tonglin, yeah. Tonglin is one of the hardest, most powerful, transcendent practices. It can evoke fear. It can evoke, oh, the ego hates it, right? Like, ah, so the Tonglin, what you're doing, if you follow kind of a very classical way, and there's so many variations that you can do on it. But what you're doing in, in, in the Tibetan tradition, they they have um, they say it's the cure for every ailment you know i kind of believe it because what you're doing is you're you're taking in that much love in a way however what you do at tonglin is that you imagine so say i wanted to work on the greed hatred and delusion in the world which is kind of what you do is you imagine i'm breathing all of that in Right, and that's actually what I was doing the night while I was meditating, and all the chaos was happening in Oakland. I was doing a version of that, like breathing in all the violence in Oakland, and then breathing out love. So you imagine that you're breathing it into your own being, and in the very, very uh, nuanced practices, they imagine that you're breathing it in as black smoke or charcoal-colored smoke, and you take it into your heart and you transmute it and you send out love. You transmute it into light, and you imagine breathing that out. So here you are breathing in all the pain. So what is the ego that goes, I don't want all this, right? Is this really affecting me? I need boundaries. No, no, right? It, it, some part of us gets scared. But when we let go and we just breathe it in and we breathe it out and we include all our own suffering, breathe it in, we breathe out, we start to feel better and better, and wow, it can have a huge effect on the heart. Yeah, and we imagine too with that, one of the other practices is that when something is happening to us, say we have a car that won't start or we have a toothache, we imagine all the people in that exact moment that have that same issue. Maybe I have a pain in my back, right, and I go, oh, and then I stop and I think about all the beings who have back pain in this moment. We breathe it in and we, we send out this light. And, and it's very, very powerful. It's extremely transcendent to do Tonglin and, and you know, Tonglin retreats are unbelievable for people. Yeah, because these practices really do work. Right, because you're shifting your your mind from what it's normally doing, and you're building new pathways. So, so okay, maybe we should stop there. Was there one last one? Okay, yeah. Uh, yes, this is actually rather alarming um, because I've been meditating for about a year um, in uh, uh, vipassana, uh, working with the breath and uh, getting some results. And I always hate it when people say, oh, no, you should be doing that. You 
you doing this? You should be doing that. So, you know, as you were speaking, uh, it's like, wait a minute. I, does, she, does she mean that the work I've been doing is going to fail somehow because it's not the right stuff? So almost as, as Jim was saying, uh, how do I integrate this? It's a disturbing message to have over here nattering away at me. Okay, and so, so let I me need clear. to reconcile. Yeah. Now you started talking about integrating it. it. Yeah. But you see the danger of that kind of a statement. I think when any teacher makes it with good intention, and there can be effects like this. Well, um, also people. So yeah, help yeah. me here. And 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 people can get attached to what you know. And again, that's what we're looking at here, right? We're looking at bringing the meta. It's not that vipassana is wrong or bad or anything. It's the loving awareness has to be infused in it in some aspect. We can do vipassana practice in a very dry, mechanical, even authoritative cruel way. I've seen this. I've sat with teachers from all over the world on long retreats with Sairao Pandita and I saw the whip on everybody. Right? Sit. Walk. Sit. Pay attention. And that's the where things get plateaued. So the pasta in itself is clear seeing. It's wise. How we over years kind of take it and manipulate it or we don't recognize the, um, the, the, the lack of warmth that we have toward ourselves or other, and we get very attached, like, like even now, like, don't tell me this. You know, we get like, ah, no, right? We lose sight of the goal, which is to perfect our love, to become freer, right? And so the, the practices themselves, if metta is infused, that's the vehicle that's going to go to the end a lot faster. That's what I'm saying. It's the people who are doing the Vipassana, what I was seeing on the retreat, who had this huge amount of compassion. It was like, wow, they're going through the stages of insight. They had this quality. They weren't doing meta practice at that time. They had it innate. They had it already developed. So then when you start going through the really choppy time that you will have to encounter every practitioner it's not going to be beautiful all the time when you're getting to these layers of greed hatred and delusion it's easy even like the buddha on the night of enlightenment that's a representative of what the energies can come and we can get knocked off if we don't have that kind of stability right and so in that moment even in the great text when the battles were happening with all the demonic forces, he called on metta. All to flowers, right? So that's what I'm talking about. It's not that there's one or the other. It's not it. It's infusing them. And the journey is that. Not. And I've seen in the West, in particular, in these communities, is only one aspect developed. It's the underdevelopment of the other one. So I'm trying to bring that out now. And you will see in Spirit Rock and all these communities a huge amount of compassion retreats about to burst on. I've seen scheduled for 2019, 20, and 21, like everywhere now, right? Because that quality has to become balanced with this. It's like the heart and the mind have been separated and now they're coming back together. So I hope that's a little more clarifying. 
Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm glad that you're, you're finding these practices. And I'm glad I could clarify on the last note. So, yeah. So, all right, everybody. It was great being here in our little solstice night. And um, the metta, of course, these cards here are about love, right? Isn't that what we always uh, wanting? So Joyce has lost her husband last week. Wow. Grieving the loss of a mother. Loss. Bobby, you recently lost a husband. My goodness, this is a lot of loss. And then children, Satya and Malaya, daughters who are far away. So we're going to hold all of them in our prayers. For all of those people transitioning, what we want to do is just send them love and light on their journey. These beings who we have love for, but that are called by spirit to a different place, but yet can hear these prayers, this love for the children who are far away. Sacha, Mayala, we send them love. And for all beings experiencing separation and loss, from those they love. May all beings everywhere be happy and comforted. May we grow from these painful experiences to open the heart, become wiser and stronger. And may any goodness that comes from our practice tonight may be dedicated to all those who have lost their loved ones. Those beings. And for all beings everywhere. Om Mani Padme Hum. Thank you, everyone. Very sweet. So, have a great holiday. Practice the heart. See where it gets you. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Nice to be here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.